I thought it would be a good time in the retreat to talk about the quality of patience. Um, So I uh, have some reflections on it, and uh, I have some source material to read from. uh, Some of it, uh, Shantideva, a 6th century Buddhist commentator. Um, Something from uh, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. I thought I would start with uh, another classic about patience. Not quite so venerable and old, but nevertheless, someday it will be venerable and old. Many of you will recognize it. It's by Dr. Seuss. Sighed Maisie, a lazy bird, hatching an egg. I'm tired, and I'm bored, and I've got kinks in my leg. From sitting, just sitting here day after day, it's work. How I hate it. I'd much rather play. I'd take a vacation, fly off for a rest. If I could find someone to sit on my nest, if I could find someone, I'd fly away free. Then Horton the elephant passed by her tree. So probably you know the story. And she says to him, would you like to sit on the egg on my nest? And he says, well, that doesn't make sense. You're so, your egg is so small, ma'am, and I'm so immense. But she makes her case, and he decides he'll do it. <laughs> and you see that he uh, carefully, gently, slowly, he crept up the tree to the nest where the little egg slept. And he sat. Horton the elephant thought, now that's that. And he sat, and he sat, and he sat, and he sat. And he sat all that day, and he kept the egg warm, and he sat all that night in a terrible storm. It poured, and it lightning. It thundered, it rumbled. This isn't much fun, the poor elephant grumbled. (laughs) I wish she'd come back, because I'm cold and I'm wet. I hope that that Maisie bird doesn't forget. So you remember the story, perhaps, that Maisie by that time was far beyond reach, away on vacation, way down in Palm Beach. So Horton the elephant. So Horton kept sitting there day after day. And soon it was autumn. The the leaves blew away and then came the winter, the snow and the sleet, and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton kept sitting and said with a sneeze, I'll stay on this egg and I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said. And I said what I meant, an elephant's faithful, 100%. So we'll come back to the end of this exciting story of Horton after a while. But so far we have passed a few of the paramitas. <clears throat> Renunciation, he'd like to get off that tree, but he didn't. Zeal, truthfulness, he said he was going to do it, he's going to do it. Determination, steadfastness. 
and patience because he had a job to do and he knew what it was and he was dedicated to doing it. And we all have a job to do as well. We are really sitting here waiting not for a bird egg to hatch, but for the potential of wisdom to ripen in all of us. And with it, the fruit of wisdom, which will be compassion and a peaceful heart. At the end of um, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, Siddhartha says, I've learned two things. I've learned to fast and I've learned to wait. And you are learning to fast and to wait. Not so much a fast of food, but a fast of, what well, this is called a fast of the heart. We don't visit, we don't talk, we're not relational. This fast of the heart gives us the opportunity to really notice the truth of our own heart, listen to what it says to us, how it responds, how it works with the experiences that come up around us and how it works with the experiences that come up in our memory. Really, I think what we're doing here is we are healing both of the experiences in our memory and in our response to life as it unfolds around us day by day. And keep thinking about all the possibilities for learning, uh, learning about suffering and learning about change. Many of you have noticed the bird that's outside that's broken its wing. Many of you noticed the loud cry of a person the other morning. Each time that there's some signal visual signal, or an auditory signal of something or someone in pain, it lets us know at least two things. One, it reminds us of the truth of suffering as part of the existence of everything in form. The other thing that it lets us know is the possibility of the human heart to respond with compassion. And I think they're both part of what we're hoping to see and experience here. That when we wait, we do this fast of the heart, and we are just here with our experience, plain, paying attention, what we're hoping is to really see in an intimate way what's true. And among the things that are true, particularly the truth of suffering, the ubiquitous quality of suffering in life. Not because we're making a mistake or anything is making a mistake, just because life in its very self, being temporal and subject to change, is full of change and loss and suffering, grief and separation from what was. And then we also see in our own minds in our experience, how the extra factors of greed and hatred and delusion when they are operative take the facts of what's happening and amplify them into really greater suffering. And when we think about the suffering in the world and the way that that suffering is produced from greed, hatred, and delusion and amplified 
and continued by the input of more greed, hatred, and delusion, we are really impelled, mandated by the, our own sense of the redemptive quality of compassion to really determine to make a difference, starting with the difference in our own heart, starting with the discovery that we can transform our own responses to those of really purified intention, steadfastness, patience, loving-kindness, that we can, as humans, really recognize suffering and meet it with kindness, not with bitterness, not with aversion, not with indifference, not with despair, all of which happens sometime, but that it's possible actually to meet suffering with wisdom and respond to it with kindness and compassion. When we heard, um, those of us who did hear, the sound of a person in distress the other morning, it's a kind of universal sound of distressed. And we might have any of us thought either I share that same distress and that person is making it sound out loud, but that's the sound of my heart. Or I've been in that place. Or I could be sometime in that place. It's a human sound of need and distress. Every time we share a story, when John told his story last week, I think, well, that's John's story, but it could be anybody's story. And we each have a variation of the story of distress and pain and dismay. And we do ourselves and each other a kindness, I think, when we tell our stories so that we know that this is what What's true for human beings? In one way or another, we are challenged. And when we're able to tell a story from the place of saying, challenge happens and it's possible to heal. Possible to heal and be able not only to um, be fully awake in life, not only be able not to be bitter about it, but be able to respond actually with a desire to respond with kindness and compassion. That we can take the stuff of our life and move it forward for the well-being of all beings. It's important, that business of being able to see that both there is suffering in life, but there is the redemptive power of compassion. Otherwise, it's quite possible that awareness of suffering gets tinged with um, a kind of aversion. I remember uh, there was a time in my practice when it was so clear to me how everything was just permeated with a fabric of suffering that everything was grief and loss 
separation. I could only see the endings of things. I could only see the aging and the dying part of things. And I would see a beautiful flower. I would think about what it would look like three days from then. I remember telling my uh, teacher about being quite overwhelmed with how unsatisfactory life was, really, that that awareness of dukkha in its unsatisfactoriness, that there is nothing that we can hold on to, and nothing at all, first of all, nothing that we can hold on to, but then everything that seems beautiful or valuable is so perishable. I could only see that part. And I remember um, him agreeing with me that that was a valid insight about how things were. And I remember leaving that interview and uh, having my hand really on the doorknob and him saying to me, yeah, be very careful, Sylvia, not to let this insight into suffering condition an aversion to life experience. So I said, um, in my most formal way that one says to teachers, thank you very much. So I had my hand on the doorknob anyway, and I went out. And then after I went out, I thought to myself, how? How should I do that? Um, What happens is that there isn't a way to do it. The way to do it is is to have the awareness that it might condition that aversion, to be on the lookout for that, and then to wait and to pay attention. Then one discovers, in fact, that everything fades and disappears. That insight is not wrong. The, the truth of it is that when one waits long enough, one sees that that's true, but it's just true. The melancholy story about it is a story about it. It's just the way things are when they're in form. They change and they fade slower or longer at different rates. That's one of the other insights that we fundamentally hope immediately to see. There's a wonderful new book out, The Life and Zen Teachings of Shunryu Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, the um, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, by David Chadwick, taken his own experiences with Suzuki and uh, those of his friends who studied with him. And he... uh, tells about one of his experiences. He said, um, at the end of a lecture one time, and this is in 1968, I sat among 50 black-robed fellow students, mostly young Americans, at Zen Mountain Center, Tassajara Springs, 10 miles inland from Big Sur, California, deep in the mountain wilderness. The kerosene lamplight illuminated our breath in the winter air of the unheated room. Before us was the founder of the first Zen Buddhist monastery in the Western Hemisphere, Shinru Suzuki Roshi, and he had concluded a lecture from his seat on the altar platform. Thank you very much, he said softly with a genuine feeling of gratitude, took a sip of water, cleared his throat, and looked around at his students. 
Is there some question, he asked, just loud enough to be heard above the sound of the creek gushing by in the darkness outside. I bowed, hands together, and caught his eye. Hi, he said, meaning yes. Suzuki Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years, I said, and I really love them, and they're very inspiring. And I know that what you're talking about is actually very clear and simple, but I must admit I just don't understand. I love it, but I feel like I could listen to you for a thousand years and still not get it. Could you just please put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Everyone laughed. He laughed. What a ludicrous question. I didn't think any of us expected him to answer it. He was not a man you could pin down, and he didn't like to give his students something definite to cling to. He had often said not to have some idea of what Buddhism was. But Suzuki did answer. He looked at me, and he said, Everything changes. Then he asked for another question. So earlier this week, quoting more contemporary teachers, Eugene spoke so really um, beautifully about Mara and the many ways in which Mara comes to seduce us away from patiently waiting for wisdom to hatch. So, catching up with Horton here. You can think about Mara as the many ways in which uh, we are distracted by hindrances. So we've already had the snow and the sleet and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. So poor Horton sat there the whole winter long and then came the whole winter through and then came the springtime with troubles anew. His friends gathered round and they shouted with glee, look, Horton the elephant's up in a tree. They taunted, they teased him, they yelled, how absurd, old Horton the elephant thinks he's a bird. (laughs) They laughed and they laughed and they all ran away and Horton was lonely, he wanted to play, but he sat on the egg and continued to say, I meant what I said and I said what I meant and an elephant's faithful, 100%. No matter what happens, this egg must be tended but poor Horton's troubles were far, far from ended. (laughs) For a while, Horton sat there so faithful and kind, three three hunters came sneaking up softly behind. He heard the men's footsteps. He turned with a start. Their rifles were aiming right straight at his heart. Did he budge? He did not. Horton stayed on that nest. He held it his head high and he threw out his chest. And he looked at the hunters as much as to say, shoot if you must, but I won't run away. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. So you've done the same thing as well. All kinds of storms have come. All kinds of demons have threatened you. My knee will explode if I sit here another minute. My back will never be the same. I will never be the same. Probably not. That one might be right. Um, I don't know what's happening to me. 
My sense of myself is changing. It's scary. But you're all still here. There's a famous Jack story of uh, many years ago um, where um, one of the managers at a retreat, knowing that uh, a certain person at that retreat had been having a great deal of difficulty, said to Jack in the staff room, how is so-and-so? How are they doing? And he said, uh, they're doing fine. And then they said, and as a matter of fact, they thought about somebody else who had been having some other difficulty. So how is so-and-so? Said, oh, she's doing fine. Then they thought of another person who had had considerable difficulty. They said, how is so-and-so? Said, oh, he's doing fine. So manager thought it over and said, Jack, what exactly do you mean when you say so-and-so is doing fine? He said, I mean that they're still here. (laughs) So, so are you. So, of course, they take Horton in a cart. They decide we'll take him to a circus. We'll sell him back home to a circus for money. And you see all the perils of his trip and up over mountains and over oceans. And he's very seasick. If you could see this up close, you'd see that his poor little eyes, where their eyes are just X's because he's seasick. And here, those are all the same things that happen to people here. You don't feel well, different things hurt you. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow up over mountains and down into valleys. But you're still sitting. So we'll come back to Horton and his travels in a little while. Talk about another contemporary teacher. We'll talk about uh, Marie's poem that she read of Merwin two nights ago. It's an amazing poem, isn't it? You thought about the poem when you heard it, as you heard it. Because it isn't thank you for the spring flowers that are just coming out, or thank you for the fruit trees in bloom. Those are some of the more easy thank yous. The fruit trees in bloom, and uh, puppies, and kittens, and looking at the birth side of things rather than the dissolution side of things. It's really thank you in spite of the fact of all the difficulties of life and the pains. And how do you do that? What's the place of mind? To what distance back do we have to pull the camera so that we don't see the details of the story but we see the amazingness of the story so that not in response to the details, which are often quite terrible, but in response to the amazing elegance of the fact of the story, we can say, thank you. How do we have to do that? And that's one of the things that we're sitting here, patiently, waiting to be able to see. We're waiting for that paradigm shift in the mind, where we go from my story to the story, and a story that is elegantly lawful, a story that's unfolding, cause and event, 
and cause and event. Conditioned arising, we call it. Sometimes when we see that in ourselves, in our own experience, a thought comes up and a feeling comes up with it and a whole memory comes up with it. And we didn't want that. We didn't ask for it. It just happened because it was time for it to happen. But that we can be with it. We can make a space for it. Say, for whatever reason, this memory is up now. This feeling is up now. I'm not in charge, but it's okay. And the sense that we get each time that we do that of courage and faith that this experience of being a human is manageable. It's endurable. It's actually not only endurable with gritted teeth, it's endurable with an open heart, with a compassionate response, with a certain amount of awesome amazement. Look what's happening all by itself. Sometimes people like to say, I'm the kind of person that likes to be always in charge. And of course, it doesn't work that way. People say, I feel uncomfortable unless I'm in charge. I think, oh dear, because soon they will discover (laughs) that they're not. And there's a kind of alarm about I'm not in charge, but then actually quite a lovely resting in the whole extraordinary picture of interconnected cause and event that's been happening ever since creation and that continues, in which every single thing matters and every single thing has an effect and is connected to every other thing. It goes, I think, from frightening to thrilling and amazing. The story of yesterday that I told you about, the real healing that happened in that person's heart when they were able to be peaceful enough, patient enough to let a story of a great deal of pain run through their body and their mind and their heart enough time so that they could sit through it. And having had the patience and the courage to endure through it, they were able to see really the fundamental deep understanding, really the view of karma that says that person was who he was because of everything that had happened to him. I am who I am because of everything that happened to me. And in that moment, everything is forgivable. doesn't make experiences that were terrible less than terrible. It just makes everything forgivable. And that piece of forgiving makes it possible for the heart to be completely open, completely benevolent, completely without restraint, actually compassionate for the pain of the other person. A number of years ago, not, I went to a uh, conference. I had the great pleasure of being at a week-long conference on uh, patience. It was uh, a teaching that the Dalai Lama did on patience in Tucson in 1993 or four. 
So it was a week-long teaching, and 1,200 people in the Sheraton Hotel outside of Tucson just as well have been on the moon because it's outside of downtown Tucson. There's no one there around except the 1,200 people that are there having the teachings all day long. There were wonderful lessons all through the week. These are some that I want to tell you. The form of the teaching was that the Dalai Lama read verse by verse uh, chapter 6 of the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is a 6th century commentary by a Buddhist commentator named Shantideva. And he would read one one verse, and then he would comment on it, and then the translator would translate. Dalai Lama speaks very good English, but because this is exegesis of text with very uh, exact nuance, he was using a translator. But it was wonderful to hear verse after verse where each time he would present, uh, Shantideva presents uh, a um, uh, hypothetical challenge to patience. So there are all ways in which we might be challenged to respond with anger or aversion. And instead, we patiently wait to have a larger view. One of them might be um, his one view. He points out that uh, anger is a response to feelings of unhappiness, which in turn arise whenever we are met with unpleasant circumstances. If we are prevented from fulfilling our wishes or forced to deal with a situation we do not like, our uncontrolled mind immediately feels unhappy. This uncomfortable feeling eventually turns to anger, and we become even more disturbed than before. points out that this confuses the mind, so you don't want to do that. So you, And he says, to overcome anger, you need to, need to develop patience so that the heart stays open. And then he goes through um, all kinds of possibilities for uh, patience to be challenged. He said, what if somebody hits you with a stick? He said, the stick falls off a tree and it hits you. You don't get mad at the stick. You say, well, just fell off the tree. But if a stick is in the hand of somebody, you say, that person hit me with intention. It wasn't the intent of the stick falling out of the tree to hurt me, but... Then he goes through um, all kinds of possibilities for uh, patients to be challenged. He said, what if somebody hits you with a stick? He said, the stick falls off a tree and it hits you. You don't get mad at the stick. You say, well, just fell off the tree. But if a stick is in the hand of somebody, you say, that person hit me with intention. It wasn't the intent of the stick falling out of the tree to hurt me, but this person hit me with the stick they meant to. It goes on to say 
that that action on the part of that person is as out of his control as the stick falling out of the tree. That all of the forces in that person's life that led that person to be the kind of a person that would have a stick that would strike you with it, then make it impossible for him not to strike you with it. And in fact, while we might not feel compassion for the tree when an old branch falls off it, we could actually feel compassion for a person who, driven by forces beyond their control, feels so unhappy that they pick up a stick and hit us with it. So it really pushes the limit of, uh, some of the limits of what we conventionally think as a response. All of the responses of patients are wait long enough and reflect what could be the largest understanding of this which will protect my peace of mind. It's actually not for the other person. It's what will protect my peace of mind so that I will continue to see clearly and not be disturbed by those terrible feelings of anger. Sometimes you think, well, it's on behalf of the other person. It's quite clear it's on behalf of one's own heart. I remember being particularly struck by one of the examples was, what if somebody does something, says something to um, disparage your good name? What if you hear through somebody else that so-and-so said something about you bad? I said, you have to reflect this way. Is what that person said about me true? Said, if it's true, you should think to yourself, this person is my teacher. They have pointed out to me something about myself that I didn't see, which wasn't so noble, and this gives me an opportunity to fix it up. I should be grateful to them. On the other hand, Shanti Deva says, you should reflect, is what they said about me not true? said, if it's not true, what's the problem? <laughs> so that's also very surprising to us because we think to ourselves, well, if it's not true, I have to take an ad out in the newspaper to let everybody know <laughs> that what so-and-so said about me is actually not true. Why? If it's not true, what's the problem? This is a very amazing way of saying I need to wait long enough for wisdom to ripen, for me to see most fully what's true. There are all various ways of preserving clarity of mind. Not necessarily calm, but clarity, so that understanding arises. I'll tell you, one of the, one of the pieces of that whole teaching in Tucson that was perhaps, they were all tremendously meaningful. In the very last day, when he finished the last verse of chapter 6, and sitting and reading from this um, Tibetan book, which is a stack of, a folio of page by page, and turning one on the other. When he had finished the last one, um, here he was sitting up in front of 1,200 people on a kind of elegant chair, and suddenly he bent over and caught his head in his hands. And um, 
possibly because I'm a worrisome type, or also because it was a strange kind of a thing to have happen. And it's an older person. He's about my age. I thought to myself, maybe he's been seized with a pain. Maybe something terrible has happened to him. Seemed to grab his head. Thought, well, who knows what's happened to him? Everybody sat very quietly and was kind of all bent over, holding his head for a while. And then he sat up, and he reached in his sleeve, and in his pocket, and uh, whatever you have in a robe, it's not exactly a pocket, but, and wiped his eyes. And it was clear that what he was doing was crying, and that he had been so moved by the text that he had read, which is one after another, after another, after another hypothetical situation in which your patience might be tried. What if this happened? What if someone speaks badly? What if someone hits you? What if someone prevents you from doing this? What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? Every possible what if, each one of them, the answer is you wait long enough to have that clearest view of the situation which will preserve the peacefulness and the benevolence of your own compassionate heart. That's the answer. And that my sense of it, although he did not do commentary on the crying part, was that it builds up and it builds up and it doesn't build up because it's coming to that as the final the final answer, it is the answer all the way along. It is steadfastly and resolutely always the answer that patience is what we need to be able to see clearly, to be able to understand the situation, which will preserve the peacefulness of heart out of which the compassionate response will arise. It was really extraordinary. It wasn't as if he hadn't taught that text dozens, maybe hundreds of times before. It wasn't as if he surprised himself by what was in there. He knew what was in there. It's tremendously moving. So we'll go back a little bit to Horton, see what happens to him, because he has a particular kind of an end. And see, here is Horton, and he's come on this ship to Miami, where he's going to be in a circus. And uh, there he is with an alarmed face. They're lowering him off the boat. And now he's in a circus, and people come to see him. And they say, look at that. It's, a, it's an elephant up in a tree. And then, all of a sudden, who should fly by? But that, good for, that old good-for-nothing bird. Runaway Maisie, still on vacation and still just as lazy, and spying the flags in the tents just below, she sang out, What fun! Why, I'll go to the show. And, and she swooped from the clouds through the open tent door. My gracious, said Maisie, I've seen you before. Poor Horton looked up with his white face, white as chalk. He started to speak, but before he could talk, there rang out the noisiest 
ear-splitting squeaks from the egg that he'd sat on for 51 weeks. A thumping, a bumping, a wild, alive scratching. My egg, shouted Horton, my egg, why it's hatching? But it's mine, said the bird. When she heard the egg crack, the work was all done. Now she wanted it back. It's my egg, she sputtered. You stole it from me. Get out of my nest and get out of my tree, poor Horton. Back down with a sad, heavy heart. But at that very instant, the egg burst apart and out of the pieces of red and white shell from the egg that he'd sat on so long and so well, Horton the elephant saw something whiz. It had ears and a tail and a trunk just like his. <laughs> and the people came shouting, what's all this about? They looked and they looked with their eyes popping out. They cheered and they cheered and they cheered more and more. They'd never seen anything like it before. My goodness, my gracious, they shouted. My word, it's something brand new. It's an elephant bird. <laughs> and it should be, it should be, it should be like that because Horton was faithful. He sat and he sat. He meant what he said and he said what he meant and they sent him home happy, 100%. So that's not quite the end because that's just the end in children's stories. That's the end where it ends happily, where something good happens, where it turns out right. So it's halfway there. Where it turns out fortunate. And we can begin to see that it's a there is justice on a level that we can appreciate. That things are lawful. It's harder to back the lens back into a world where there is so much pain, where sometimes it doesn't look lawful, where people are cruel or abusive, where terrible things happen, where terrible things happen just because it's a natural world in which there are earthquakes and snow slides and tidal waves and unnatural things happen like people kill each other have wars or exploit the world markets so that some people have way too much and other people don't have enough how will we pull the camera back enough and be patient enough so that our hearts are not filled or clouded with despair or dismay or anger or aversion and indifference that comes from aversion to be able to respond to that groaning of the world with compassion. I think it comes really from discovering that our own hearts have the possibility of peace and then believing that that's true 
for human beings. And then being somehow mandated to manifest through the way that we are that teaching so that the people that we meet and the people that they meet, maybe the people that they meet, will ultimately change the world and tip the balance. Don't think that we can do it from other than a place of peace. The place that precedes that is the place of forgiveness. That in all of the examples that the Dalai Lama gave for what looks like someone purposely hurting you, abusing you, somehow bringing discomfort to you, the possibility of being able through a vantage point of clarity that one develops through patience and through really reflection what could be happening here is the vantage point of knowing that whoever is doing pain to anyone else is themselves in great pain which is the place of compassionate response it's extremely hard to hold that place because when people, individual people, groups of people, nations of people are hurting other people, the natural response, I think, the impulsive, instinctive response is self-protective. I will protect me, I will protect mine. And really, I think it's probably species preservational to react immediately with a startle. And if we are sometimes able to overcome that startle. We can maybe see in a way that allows for a more wise input. Many years ago, there's a woman, there is a woman named Vimala Tarka who's a... um, Uh, a social activist in India, Um, very much in the style of Gandhi, walking from one end of India to, from village to village, helping uh, villages begin to develop community systems so that people will come together and communally farm, build a communal well, work together on septic systems, make a school, begin to make better situations for young brides, village by village. There are a billion people in India. The job is massive. It's very painful to watch, to know the amount of poverty, the amount of difficulty, the amount of suffering just in staying alive, and the amount of extra suffering that happens through as a result of the same kinds of blindnesses of greed and hatred and delusion that people all over the place have. And she came to a retreat that I was sitting at, and she was passing through this country, visiting various retreat centers, and so she was the guest for an afternoon, and uh, 
she sat up in front and led us sitting, and all we knew about her is that, that she was a tremendous social activist and that she was renowned for having a very firmly established meditation practice. And someone asked her in the question and answers, what does your meditation practice have to do with your life as a social activist? Does it have anything to do with your life as a social activist? And she said, it has everything to do with my life as a social activist. The amount of pain that one needs to look at when one confronts that massive of a job to be done is so enormous that it would be impossible to do it if I did not have the refuge of my own peaceful heart. To be able to look at a situation and say, this situation is very difficult. It is very difficult because of all the conditions. Everyone who's done anything or is doing anything to make this situation difficult is the result of all of the conditions that has created them, created everything in this moment. No one is guilty. Everyone is responsible. And what I do makes a difference. That allows for the compassionate response always. So you probably noticed um, that the moon has been getting fuller and fuller. And uh, tomorrow night will be uh, a full moon. And this particular full moon is um, the celebration of Purim, which is a Jewish holiday celebrating uh, a particular event that happened in Persia, or that is supposed to have happened in Persia, about a thousand years after the Exodus. So that's a story about... um, um, a threat to the Jews in Persia from uh, someone who was an adversary, and they're being saved by uh, a wise person. And uh, so the, the threat is from a person named Haman, and the wise person is a person named Mordechai. And actually, the, 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 the heroine of the story is Esther, the niece of Mordechai, who is able to convince the king of Persia to not go ahead with a terrible plan that would annihilate all of the Jews. And uh, the celebration for uh, Purim involves reading the book of Esther. And uh, when the book of Esther is read, there um, and the name of Haman is recited. Everybody who's there, all the kids have a a noisemaker. When you say Haman, they all do the noisemaker, like like people used to go in a movie of villains and heroes, and here comes the villain, and everybody does boo. So it's the same with the noisemaker. But then Mordechai is a good name, so then yay. And it's one of those holidays where. Uh, Uh, one of the prescriptions for how to celebrate that holiday is to do it with enormous joy. So it's a celebration holiday. It's a party. People dress up in costumes. One of the um, traditions is to drink 
actually, to get a little bit intoxicated. And one of the comments, it's not a mandate, it's just one of the customs that some folks have. And part of that custom says, you have to be so intoxicated that you can't even tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai. So you think, well, maybe one interpretation of that of that prescription is that it overcomes the sorrow or you forget about the sorrow. I like to think actually that it has a deeper interpretation that the mind becomes intoxicated not with substance because we that doesn't work permanently. But what if the mind became really filled, in a sense, intoxicated with the amazing, extraordinary interconnectedness of all events always? What if there was such a profound understanding of karma that filled the mind, intoxicated it, just completely filled it forever and ever, so that there would be no booing and no yaying, but just really um, heartfelt, benevolent, compassionate response to everyone, to the person who are fr- the people who are frightened and imperiled, and to the pe- people who are frightening and imperiling, all at the same time, all the Hamans and all the Mordechais, all at the same time, whole categories of people in the world those people under siege, those besieging, everybody else not knowing what to do, to know everyone is in their situation because of all the things that have ever happened and to be resolved in one's own life to make a difference. And to be resolved that the difference comes through clarity and through wisdom, which is what we're working on. So we'll sit. May all beings resting in the safety of their own benevolent heart be empowered to respond to all of the world with complete compassion.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 28, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.